All right, welcome everybody to uh, this edition of Breaking Absolutes. Um, so pleased that I, I was finally able to um, connect with Billy Sheehan. Uh, he's going to join us today. Um, such a, a long and successful career. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of ground to cover. Um, many of you, of course, are going to be familiar with Billy. But let me do some setup for those who are less familiar, or if you know him, of him or have heard his music and aren't aware of all of it. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's, you know, almost not a, a, a respected, you know, high caliber practicing musician today that Billy hasn't collaborated with in some way. And I know that that's a, a, a hyperbolic statement, but when you, you've got guys like Steve Vai and Tony McAlpine and David Lee Roth and Greg Howe and uh, Richie Kotzen and Mike Portnoy and the list goes on, you begin to sort of see a pattern of excellence uh, and association between musicians who are obviously recognizing in Billy um, if they're asking him to participate. And that's even beyond the, the bands that he has founded himself and, and driven uh, at a level of, of musicianship and commercial success that is um, really remarkable. So that's, that's part of who he is as a, as a player. He's been, um, there's not enough uh, ink in the world to um, enumerate all of the various best of lists that he makes as a, as a bass player. Um, one of the things that I believe and we'll talk about in the show is I think that um, his, his work and his career makes a very strong argument for being a player who changed the way bass is played and the way uh, generations of bass players look at the instrument and, and look at ways to excel with the instrument. And I think that's, I think that's part of Billy's legacy. Not that he's not still going to do a ton of music, but I think it, it, it's even bigger than just the music in some ways. Um, he he's, was a part of the, the David Lee Roth, Eat and Smile, which had, had all kinds of chart positions. Um, uh, founder of uh, uh, Mr. Big, which had a number of major, major hits. Uh, their one big single you probably remember to be with you was uh, a number one in 15 countries and spent three weeks top on the Billboard charts. And there's a lot of this kind of, um, these kind of accolades for Billy. Um, and we'll point you to those later because I don't want to take up a bunch of time on just his Von Mott's, but I wanted to give you enough to understand a um, little bit of the success that this, this guy's had. So with that as my preamble, let me bring the man on. Billy Sheehan, welcome. Well, uh, thank you for all that, uh, all those kind words. Uh, I'll try to live up to that. <laughs> uh, well, you, you don't really even have to live up to it because this, this is all stuff that you've uh, accomplished. Um, I just, I get a chance to kind of remind everybody of uh, this, you know, this kind of altitude of, of success. Um, and I know that you're not a guy to take it for granted, but uh it, I, you know, I think it bears repeating. So that's, that's all. That's all. I was just kind of setting that up. Um, very, very kind to say. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, you bet. Um, okay. So let me just start with the simplest thing. And you and I talked briefly about this before we came on the show, but um, how is, how have you been weathering the pandemic? Like what is, what has your life been like the last 18 months? Oh, it's actually been uh, pretty nice. Uh, I love to play live. I live to play live, uh, but I hate traveling. <laughs> so getting to and from on tour bus, yeah, but on flights, I despise it. So uh, there's been very little flying uh, uh, recently, which is nice. But uh, I've been working a lot at home, practicing a lot, working on a lot of new music, I'm recording for people all around the world. So it's been quite a busy time. Yeah. And uh, we were very uh, lucky uh, a few years ago to find an amazing home here in Nashville. And uh, we're surrounded by 
woods and wildlife and it's beautiful and serene and peaceful and safe and calm. So it's been, uh, it's been nice to be home. This is the longest I've been home since the seventies. So. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, I, you know, I, I have to admit, I've seen some of your posts on Facebook. And so I, you do these beautiful pictures. I'm like, where, where's he taking these pictures? That's your backyard, those woods. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. We're, we're, we're very, very uh, fortunate to have a situation like this now. We're, uh, I did a lot of home handyman things around the house too while I was off, so I got a lot of things done. And it's it's been it's you know I I need to play. I gotta play. I, playing is everything. Live playing is everything to me. Yeah. So that's been. But but in the meantime, I've been practicing a lot. I've been putting hours and hours and hours in on my bass and uh, improving a lot of things. It's just I've been doing so much recording. My my your ability to perform on someone else's material and do it in a way that pleases them. And it's a skill in itself as well. So I've been working on that quite a bit and we seem to have been uh, successful at it. So it's, it's all good. Yeah. Well, uh, um, it is one of the, I don't know if silver lining is a good term, but one of the consequences of the pandemic is, is musicians able to reconnect with family and home and, and then do a bunch of recording. Um, uh, some, some folks are writing new material and I know you're doing that too. And we're going to get to winery dogs in a minute. I know you also get a lot of nods to to collaborate. So it sounds like you're still doing plenty of that during this time. Absolutely, yeah. We and I've done tracks for people, you know, from India, from Indonesia, from uh, Belarus, from uh, Italy, from Germany, from all over the USA, from Japan, from uh, Australia, all over the place. So yeah. it's uh, keeping in touch with people around the world. Hey, um, so. Share with us, I want to kind of go back to early, early, Billy. Um, what, what formulated your interest in the genre of music? And then the second part of that question is, um, why the bass? Like, was there a, a, some reason you chose the bass or did you fall into that? Uh, I'll do the second question first. Yeah, uh, yeah I, uh, when I was very young, uh, Around the corner from my house was a guy named Joe Hesse, and he was a bass player. And he was a really cool guy, and he had a Triumph motorcycle and beautiful girlfriend, and he was a bass player. And uh, I wanted to be like Joe. I mean, Joe was just a super cool guy, and I, I looked up to him. And I remember my brother saying to me, you know, we're listening to the radio as a little kid. And he goes, yeah, you hear, hear that there? I go, yeah, yeah, that's the bass. I go, yeah, like Joe plays. Yeah, that's the bass. And when I'd sleep at night, because I was a little kid, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me go near where they were rehearsing. I had to go to bed early and I'd lay in my bed. I could hear the bass, you know, uh -huh. through the distance to, from his house. Like you hear a subwoofer on a car stereo from very far away, you hear the bass first. So I just was enthralled with it. Finally, one day Joe let me in the house and I got to pick his bass up and plucked it for a little while. I got a blister on my finger. It bit back right away. So I knew that we, we, we had a, a future together and, uh, then when I saw the Beatles uh, play on the Ed Sullivan show on that actual broadcast, and I saw the girls screaming, I knew that I wanted that for my job. <laughs> Why not the bass? And it was, I was lucky initially because uh, bass players were difficult to find. Everybody had a guitar, but not as many people had a bass. So you almost always had an offer for a gig. Yeah. So I got gigs re right away, got in bands right away. So that was good. But uh yeah, it, it just, and it kind of spoke to me, you know, it's, I'm tall and skinny, so it's the bass, it's low, and so is my voice, low, so it's, uh, you know, kind of worked out well like that. And uh, the guitar, of, of course, is the glory instrument, 
or lead vocalist, even more glory. Uh, the bass is more of a, a working man thing. You're back there with a the drummer, you're holding it together, you're doing your thing. And uh, it's it, it's a vital foundation to the rest of the band. Sure. I kind of like, like being in that position of just holding things together and what have you. So that that's why that's why the bass. Why and your first first part of your question was well, and you you answered it, kind of how you came to it. It sounds like the Beatles were formative in your, in your absolutely path. Yeah. All kinds of music too. Uh, uh, my mom was a music lover, mostly Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Tony Bennett, uh, great singers, big bands. Yeah. I got into a lot of big bands when I was uh, beginning, as far as the jazz rock, Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, bands like that. Uh, it was my first band out of high school. And then uh, just about every genre you could imagine we've been through, because as we played through the years, a new band and a new thing would come out and we'd adopt to that and adopt to the next thing. So, you know, we were playing straight up copy tunes, Stones, Beatles, Hendrix, and then uh, some more elaborate stuff came and then Prague came and then Van Halen came and then ACDC came and you, all those things changed uh, the local bands until eventually I got in a situation where I was uh, uh, performing uh, original music and getting, uh, making records and what have you. Well, it, I have to tell you, when you, when you start by saying, you know, the, the sort of working man and being in the back, just kind of keeping things together, I, I almost laughed a little bit because while all of that's true, your career has been far from just being the guy in the back. Like you've made that instrument and the way you play it a force like it is it is a lead instrument and there's a ton of music we're going to talk about that proves that well um because i played in a three-piece band for so long we needed we didn't want to hire an extra guy because you make a hundred bucks a night you get 33 dollars each if you got four guys you only make 25 dollars each so it was an economic factor back in those days for sure but so we uh for because we didn't have a rhythm guitar player or a keyboard player I had to do a lot of extra things on the bass to make up for it. So when the guitar player soloed, I had to do a lot more than just hold a single note. Because it kind of, okay, we're in the key of G. Is it major or minor? How you had to kind of spell it out with the bass lines. And so uh, being in a three-piece band for so long was a big help to me. Uh, just coming up with different ways of uh, creating a foundation for the guitarist, implying instruments that aren't there, like we do... Uh, carry on wayward son and you know we play it i do the keyboard stabs yeah or i do horn parts or the rhythm guitar was doing something i'd mimic it in some ways on the bass without losing the low end so it was there was always bass of course so that was a certainly a contributing factor and and we were a copy band so we had to play songs by all kinds of bands that had all kinds of instrumentation. So we had to make up for it. So we did, I remember we, uh, we did uh, uh, White Punks on Dope by the Tubes, which is an elaborate production with the chorus and, you know, the full band and synth and keyboard and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, but we pulled it off as a three piece. We, we got it, we made it happen. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Well, it's interesting to hear some of the, the first um, inclinations towards taking the bass beyond the root notes. Um, because so much of your music, uh, I mean, you're still doing all kinds of music, but some of the music you've done, um, it, I mean, the bass is kind of the feature. And I'll be honest with you, I love that. that w- a group that I was in, we had a, a player who was, was um, after your fashion, where they used the instrument in lots of ways and used a lot of chords and different things that I know you've done. 
and it's, it's intimidating for some players because you know that there seems like you're taking up you know the sonic space and you, you um and yeah, you don't want you don't want to do that that's why uh sons of apollo a band i'm, I'm currently uh, uh playing in there's a lot of keyboards and a lot of low end so i pull i pull way back mm -hmm. and i i play much less yeah. other than the things that are required for me to play within the arrangement of the band, of the song right. various lines that i have to double or harmonize or whatever but uh yeah there's uh the more guys, the more instrumentation and careful planning there must be between their uh, their roles. Whereas uh, in a three-piece band, it's pretty much anything goes. The drummers are more busy. The guitar players are busy. Everybody sings usually, and the bass player gets to move around a lot. Uh, Grand Funk Railroad. Uh, and of course, today, I don't know uh, when this is going to air, but we lost uh, Dusty Hill from ZZ Top today earlier. Yeah. And what a great, great, great player and holding it down together with, for Billy Gibbons and Frank Beard, one of the greatest players ever. Uh, it's a it's a sad day for, for bass today, unfortunately. Yeah, it is. You know, and that, that's, an, that's a group that had such an iconic, unique sound. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, it's uh, never to be replaced. Um, no. Well, let's talk a little bit, um, just a little bit more about the instrument. You, um, I did a little bit of reading here, and it sounds like uh, the first bass that you began to really lean in on modifications to sort of help it do the things you wanted to do was a precision bass. Is that, is that, am That's I right there? Right, right there. That's her right in the front. I refer to it as the wife. Yeah. <laughs> Constantly. People would knock on my door, and I'd walk through the door with my bass on, and they'd go, don't you ever put that thing down? I no, I actually probably don't. I'm, it's with me almost all the time. And that was that's her right there. Behind it is her sister, who was a backup bass I kept on the road with me when I was when I was touring with this. But that bass was all the Tal Shears, everything up to David Lee Roth, and then Edom and Smile in the first uh, Mr. Big record and Mr. Big tour. And I retired it at one point when Yamaha made uh, these bases, the Attitude bases, which were based solely on the dimensions, the neck is the same size as that old Telecaster neck, same uh, configuration of pickups, dual output to two different amps. That's what I use a lot. So, uh, but I, I didn't want it to be on the road with me too much more. The body's cracked and it's been beat up. And if you lick it, it's salty and <laughs> it's salty by salt. So don't lick it. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's, there's so many great jokes I could make right there. <laughs> um, well, one of the things I read that, that you did in modifying it was you scalloped out the, the five highest frets. Yeah, it's done on this one also by scalloping the, sh the edge of a scallop shell of these little little cutouts. Yeah. Kind of scalloping is where you cut the wood out from the, in between the frets. And on its base and on that also, the last few frets are smaller fret wire. So it's a little more accurate in uh, if the note is sharp or flat, it's more accurate if it's a fret is smaller. And uh, it helps you get... So it helps you just get to that, that bend. Yeah. It helps you get underneath the string there a little bit to make that bend. Because oh, bass strings are, are quite a bit heavier than guitar strings. So when you're doing a bend, uh, it, it requires a little more muscle and a little bit more callus too, because it hurts. <laughs> Yeah, that's fascinating. How did you come by? Did you is that just an instinct you had to make that, or you read that somewhere? 
I heard about it in the 70s because uh, John McLaughlin from the Mahavishnu Orchestra, wonderful, incredible guitar player and one of the first really prog uh, bands, jazz mix uh, bands that there, that there, there was, brilliant band. Uh, he had done it and I'd seen a guitarist friend of mine in Buffalo that had done it too, but I didn't pay much attention to it until we went on tour to Alice and Ingve, uh summer of 85 and Ingve's necks are completely scalloped. And I thought, I, I still like the idea, but I don't want to use lose that much wood by doing the whole neck. So I just did the one, two, three, four, five. And I it was in the hotel room with my Dremel Moto tool. And I was, <laughs> and it flipped and went across the, the fret. So I, I said, okay, enough, enough. So, and I only went halfway across only because the big frets at the, at the bottom, they bend rather easily because they're loose. And plus you could never push that down into the wood anyway. Yeah. Where, where these, you know, are, are on the higher notes, as you bend the note, you can, you can, you can hear that, yeah. that wiping, that it's, it's, it's scraping on the wood a little bit. Yeah. But in fact, it's not a really necessary thing. I uh, play basses without it and it's fine. But because we had it on the wife originally, we grandfathered it into these basses and uh, it's a little uh, uh, tribute to the old girl. Yeah, that's right. And well, and I think it's, uh, I think it shows some innovation on your part. You also introduced a, a neck pickup. Well, I didn't introduce it. It came from a guy, uh, a lot of uh, basses in the early days in the sixties had a big fat pickup near the neck as opposed to here or near the bridge here. Yeah. Near the bridge, it's gonna be a real trebly sound. Here's gonna be just kind of the middle, the pre precision bass had that pickup. These are P bass style pickups, DiMarzio version. Uh, that's kind of the universal tone, but that super deep low end had uh, a, a different thing to it. So if I play just that pickup, just super deep low end, and that's going through a separate amp. So in the three-piece band, there was always low end bass. If there was feedback or harmonics or any other uh, crazy things, uh, they would come out of this pickup in a different amp. So we always had that low end there. It's a super important thing when you hear now I, I've been corrected on the internet, certainly not the first time, uh, uh, Paul McCartney's bass for a song called rain by the Beatles. Yeah. That's actually a Rickenbacker bass, but I do believe that it's still a neck position pickup because his Hoffner bass had that neck position, uh, pickup. It was a very popular tone in the 60s going into the 70s. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of iconic bass players who have done the same thing. Mel Shacker from Grand Funk Railroad on his jazz bass, he put a big neck position pickup there. All the Alembic basses were the first handmade bass that was readily available. They all had dual output and a neck position pickup. Uh, Rickenbacker had a Rico Sound, which is a stereo uh, plug. Uh, just I did I have two mono instead of stereo, but. Uh, with a separate output for each pickup, uh, a bunch of other bass players. The, the bass player from, uh, who's the Indian band that had a, uh, come and get your love, uh, Redbone. That bass player had a big EBO pickup on his bass. I, I never knew him or anything like that, but, but uh, so it was an idea that wasn't, I didn't, I came up, uh, on my own, but a lot of other people came up with the same idea because uh, it, it makes sense to get the super deep low end out of a P bass style bass. So yeah. that, that was about it. It's a, it was a long way to go to answer that. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's all fast. And it leads into 
what I was where I was going with that is so there was some precedent for it, but you um, you are sort of known for a signature sound. I mean, there's a sort of a Billy Sheehan sound. Is there not where you're you you're using the two amps and you're yeah. running distortion on one? Am I yeah. accurate there? Yeah, absolutely. It's a mixture of uh, actually three sounds: completely clean, normal bass, super deep, low end, completely clean, and on the distortion goes on or off. So for to be with you, the distortion we would be off, of course, you know, because it's a it's a just simple, easy ballad. But when the, the song gets fast or loud and heavy, it knocks the distortion in, and then it sounds like there's an, a rhythm guitar player playing also because that distortion is coming out of a separate amp. So again, the three-piece idea, it helps just build that wall of sound to keep things uh, together. Yeah. No, I, I love it. Um, I remember the first <clears throat> live player, I, I bass player I ever played with who used some distortion, and it was a revelation to me. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of, of uh, the sound you, you, know, you get out of that, as, as well as the way you play it. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. I have a sure. question I'm sure you've answered before, but I, I, I couldn't find an answer to it. So in, in this world, and, and you, you belong to, to groups that are, that are very, have all the chops and, and you've done your own fusion stuff. And we're going to talk about some of that cool music in a minute, but you, I, I don't, you've never really adopted the five and six string bass that I've seen as a, as a primal primary instrument. Is that true? And if so, was yeah. there a reason you've kind of stayed where you're at? Uh, well, the four has a thing. There's a curvature to the neck that works with your hand really well. Uh, and, uh, if I need super low, I can either use the D tuner, yeah. which is a thing on the back of the neck where I can do that little thing. And then the, the note goes down from an E to a D so I can get that low note. And if I need to bend that down to is the low B of a five or six. Oh, wow. Yeah. Bend it. I can bend it if I need to. Uh, and if I do really need a low tune bass, I do have a six string bass here that I played the song, uh, Just Take My Heart, Mr. Big Song, I used a six string bass on. But, uh, or I'll just take a regular four string and string it B-E-A-D. Okay. The last four strings of a five or six string bass. And my double neck uh, that I use with Sons of Apollo, one, one bass is normal tune, the other one is tuned down to the B-E-A-D configuration. So I can do get all those super low notes. But I was just, I'm just used to that curvature my hands uh, the way everything works uh, is four strings and it's been that way for over 50 years so switching to the five or six if you play a five or six fantastic that's great but i i just uh prefer the four and uh i can get that note other ways too yeah that's true yeah it's, and it, it um i like the the creative nature of the way you do that the first time i saw that sort of uh um hip shot detune thing a, a bass player by the name of michael manring uh, uh, he, he does a thing where he's got a bunch of those and it's really cool how, how, you know, using that to, to move between chord progressions and, and resolve uh, chords is, is, um, really impactful. So I, I'm a big fan of, of, um, what yeah, you're doing. They make them from, from, for guitars too. I got them and most of any guitar I have, I'll put a detuner on it as well. And I think, uh, Ed Van Halen at some point with his, uh, Floyd Rose tailpiece. They made a special thing so you can drop that low E down to a D also. Oh, okay. For songs like uh, Unchained, that was that was the low D tuning. Uh, the E string was tuned down to a D for that song and several others. So yeah. Well, let's um, let's move on to the music. So, and I want to start with your solo career. 
um, you've you know you've done I th- what, uh, by my count you've done four solo records, um, and these are I don't th- I could be wrong about this Billy but I don't think you're as known for these as you should be. <laughs> oh, well, that's very kind. I uh, again uh, in reference to the great uh, Dusty Hill uh, uh, on my last solo record Billy Gibbons came and and played a solo on a, a song that I did and. I, what an honor to have him on my record. I'm just a ZZ Top fan. And, uh, but thank you very much. Uh, uh, the, the, the records weren't necessarily designed to be like a psychotic bass record. They were more, they're just straight up music and songs and singing. Yeah. So maybe I should, maybe I should knock the singing off. You know, I, I know how to clear out a room really to get a, get a guitar <laughs> and start singing and where'd everybody go? You know, so, <laughs> so. Well, there's, there's, uh, I want to reference a couple of them. So the, the, the first one, the first record's called Compression. The second one's called Cosmic uh, Troubadour. And yes. I, once I got going on listening to a bunch of this stuff, I got, I got caught up, um, uh, spent hours listening to this music because uh-huh. there's, there's, um, there are tunes that are just, many of them, that of course, rip because you have that facility and you can do it so musically. But then there's there's stuff that you there's a song called Dreams of Discontent that's got this you do oh, wow. this cool harmonics and it's got this um, it's an instrumental there's, it it sounds like you've got multi tracks of bass in that because it's so lush um, but it's it's a place where like the to, to me the bass is the thing that you're and not unsurprisingly because you're the, you're the bass player and it's your record but the, the sonically the experience is the bass is first and it's it's for that it's very unique. Um, was that well, the desire? Yeah, well, um, as usual with most things, there's no real plan in the beginning. It just happens. rolls along and nature takes its course and that's how it ends up. And that's that happens with so much. Uh, it's funny when we go to Japan and any of the bands, the incarnations that I go there with, they always ask questions about, you know, did you plan or will you plan this? And I know I say, there's no, we just kind of roll the dice and right with it so and a lot of those uh, records my last concern was the bass i was more concerned with songwriting i'm playing baritone guitar a lot of baritone 12 string guitar uh and and, and then we said oh well, well, oh forgot about the bass <laughs> let me quick let me put some bass down so it wasn't really thought out as much it was more spontaneous with the bass uh i hope to do a, a record coming up pretty soon with uh, ray lugier he's a drummer for corn a dear friend of mine an amazing player We've just been playing bass and drums together for a long time, coming up with some wild stuff. So that might be the that might end up being the fourth uh, uh, record, somewhat solo, but still with Ray's uh, uh, heavy contribution from Ray, of course. Well, wouldn't but, it Wouldn't it be the fifth record because you did prime prime cuts? I guess that's a compilation. Oh yeah, it was a compilation. Yeah, yeah, uh, you're right. I and then to- holy cow. <laughs> uh, um, well, that sounds great. I would love to hear this this new uh, effort. Um, is that cool. is that something that's like is going to happen or you're just toying with that idea uh we've got a lot of a lot of the framework built so we hopefully we can get the roof on at some point and get it going i love the metaphor you're (laughs) you're one of the best metaphor uh guests i've had (laughs) (laughs) um a couple of i just want a couple of more call outs for folks because i i want to commend you to this music but on the prime cuts record there's a, a tune called Elbow Grease. It's got some amazing, um, it's all amazing playing, but this one's uh, features, it sounds like a Hammond um, organ to me. Um, you do, there's a in, in inclusion in prime cuts uh, of trees, uh, the, the rush cover you did, which, oh, yeah. yeah, really, really well done. Um, great homage to, to Getty, who um, 
uh, I'm sure. We all love. Yeah. We all, we all know and love. Um, uh, there's a tune called, as I, ironically, as I was kind of following your career, I, I was listening to the um, bass solo, which is a, 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 from a concert, I think, in Buffalo in 1940, 1994 that is just <laughs> over-the-top amazing. Like, I, I'm glad that the sound guy captured that on the soundboard if that's how that happened. Because I, I literally heard that and said, holy cow. And then I saw your next record's called Holy Cow. Uh, but tell <laughs> us that, that the, uh, the animal on the cover turns out is a steer. It's not a cow. So, uh, well, you know, close enough for government work. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, how, how did that bass solo get captured? Was that just a cut that was from the soundboard? Yeah, probably. Yeah. So there, there's no edits on it. It's all completely live. And, I've done a couple solos over the years, like live at Budokan. Every Mr. Big Tour, we end up doing some shows at the Budokan in Tokyo. And uh, it's, it's uh, as I watch it, I remember being there and doing it, and I didn't give it much thought. But as I watch it, I go, it's pretty precarious to be in the middle of the entire Budokan on, a, on the second stage with just the bass and be surrounded by about 10,000 people. And any mistake... Or any error would be glaring, so yeah. uh, precarious to say the least. But uh, somehow I managed to land on my feet at that at that point. But uh, oh, yeah, there's been a bunch of solos uh, recorded over the years. I, I just found someone, some fans just sent me a cassette, oh and God. I just digitized. And there's a couple of solos uh, on it and such from the old days. I have quite a digital archive of a lot of things I've done through the years. Some some call me a hoarder. Uh, I'll, I'll refer to it as archivist. But uh, from uh, early days of Mr. Big, uh, early days of Talus, uh, demos, outtakes, live shows, sound checks, things like that. So there's uh, at some point I have a YouTube channel now, and I've just been telling people how to how to work on their bass or put a pickup in or something like that. But at some point I'll start to post some of the rarer archive stuff and give it a little bit of an explanation. Even some of the embarrassing stuff I'll I'll post. <laughs> No, that would be that would be great because this, uh, you know, it's uh, I think it speaks to you as a musician that um, in that sort of uh, unaccompanied environment, you do so much with the instrument. That particular solo, it's and it's also surprising because you you're doing things and changing up techniques and it all flows musically, but it's it's not just um, you playing a bunch of scales or, you know, it's really really musically refreshing. Um, so if you've got more stuff in the archives, yes, please share them. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you to say I'm a, a big fan of classical music. And classical music has structure and form and a beginning and an end and a repeat theme. And there's a thing to it. Like there is in many songs, you know, intro, verse, pre-chorus, chorus, right. second verse, pre-chorus, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus, out. And there's, there's, there are many formulas to that. But uh, in a solo, uh, uh, I've been doing it for a long, long time. The first song I did, uh, an unaccompanied solo in, was a song called Mr. Big. And um, uh, it was a song by Free. And uh, and it was quite an active bass playing. Andy Frazier is a bass player. Great, great player. And he's all over the place. And it's really cool. So I, one night I just told the man, you guys stop. And then I'll go. And then I'll cue you and come back in. You sure you know what you're doing? Eh? No, but we'll do it anyway. And uh, we did. And it worked. Pretty well, so everything that was in the early, early seventies, early seventies. So it, we we kind of kept it in the show, and it became a thing. And by doing those unaccompanied solo for so many years, you begin to 
like anything, you start to fine tune it and build things into it and realize like a movie, it's got to have, you know, a scene by scene. There's the love scene and the car chase and the shoot them up and the uh, suspenseful ending and the big reveal and uh, almost uh, cinematographically, which is actually a word, um, <laughs> we try to put that together. So, uh, and the prime reason is to make it entertaining because it's not about look, look, look how fast I can play. Let's do some music that actually comes together as something that hopefully a non-bass player, non-musician would find uh, entertaining yeah. because uh, I think sometimes a lot of musicians get lost in this musician thing and they forget that people out there, they're, they're not musicians. And if you played something that other musicians might be impressed with, uh, the people, it's, it's not their thing, you know? So I, I always try to remain connected to the sensibility that someone out there listening may just be there to hear music. So mm -hmm. let's make it music. Yeah, no, I, lo I love that. And, um, you know, you, <clears throat> you're playing certainly evidence is the technical facility, but um, I definitely hear this sort of music, music approach. And you've, you've talked about this even in this interview, places where you recognize where you want to pull back because there's, there's other things going on and other places where there's just more room for you. Um, the, the last thing I want to say about your solo career is the Holy Cow record. You, you had Doug Pinnock on that record. Right? Yeah, it's the great Doug Pinnock. Yeah. Sang a, a, a song called The Turning Point. And uh, he came over to my house, and I love Doug completely. He's one of the greatest people in the world, and what a talent. King's X should have been bigger than you, too. Why they weren't or is a, a sad thing, but yeah. uh, it was so great. Those first two records, every musician I know fell in love with that band. It's just so great. Yeah. Uh, I agree a hundred percent. And, and some of the, the music on your Holy Cow record has uh, at least a couple of the tracks, even before I got to the track turning point, I think it was the track in, in a week or two. There's a little bit of a King's X feel in that. Um, oh, well, I take that as a very, very kind compliment because I do love that band myself. Yeah. That's a, and this, this particular record, and it ends, I think with a, a song called cell tower, um, which is yeah. a tour to base tour de force. Uh, and it's, it's got all of the sort of explosiveness. And then it goes into this halftime thing that's just so, like, airy and refreshing. Um, I'm, I'm just kind of giving people pointers to tracks uh, that I think can be gateways into the broader Billy Sheehan world. <laughs> You're hired. You're hired. <laughs> yeah, I'm hired. Uh, let's transition and talk about some of the bands. So the first sort of big band that you were in that had a lot of recognition and some success was Talus. Yeah, we uh, were based out of Buffalo, New York, went through many incarnations. The last one was actually the version eight or nine, Talus. And uh, in 1980, one version of the band opened up for Van Halen uh, for about 30 shows. And uh, uh, it was a quite a, a turning point for us to be exposed to that and be on the same stage with a huge band like Van Halen. Yeah. And, uh, it was a huge, I loved that band so much. I loved all of them, Eddie, Al, Mike, and Dave, of course. And uh, we went through many changes. After that, we thought we'd be a shoe in to get a deal and get signed, but it didn't happen. And we kept trying and pushing. And it was a frustrating, difficult time. Uh, faced with uh, uncertainty, then they changed the drinking age in the clubs from 18 to 21. So the <laughs> club business dropped in half. Yeah. And so everybody was worried that uh, we, we could be, you know, we, we, we all quit our day jobs. <laughs> now we might have to go back uh, for, no, I never actually had a day job, but, but in fact, we may have to go to plan B. And then uh, luckily 
we were revitalized. We reconstructed Talos again for the final time, did a tour with Ingve, And then on that, the same week, we got uh, three phone calls. One was from the William Morris agency, booking agency, say, hey, we would love to put Talos on with Ingve for his first U.S. tour. Okay. The next one was Gold Mountain Record, Records, Danny Goldberg. He later went on to manage Nirvana. Uh, he, he wanted to sign the band. So, okay, we got our record deal. And the third call was from David Lee Ross' office saying, uh, Dave's doing a movie and he wants you to be in it. <laughs> what? what? So I said, what in the world is that about? So I, we were going out to LA to start the tour. So I arranged to have a meeting and I found out, yeah, there is a movie, but unknown to anyone at that time, he'd quit Van Halen and wanted to start a band and said, you and me, let's go find a guitar player and drummer and do it. And bang, that was, uh, that was the end of Talos. I always said to people, and there's only one band I'd leave Talos for, that'd be Van Halen, but I love Michael and you know I don't want to see him go, but man, I love Van Halen. And <laughs> when Dave called, I said, close enough. When yeah. I was, I was yeah. gone. Wow, yeah, that I, I was at that first Eat and Smile tour. Uh, I, I was at the, at the show and it was it was remarkable. It, I mean, there had been super groups before, but that was the first time that I remember sort of in my mind connecting the idea that um, this band had been put together to be like uh, virtuoso at every instrument. And, but it was more than that, of course, because then you guys had such amazing commercial success. Not, uh, by the way, not that commercial success is the only thing, but um, every musician wants to be able to pay their mortgage. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, Dave was very, very smart and uh, he's just, a, I love him dearly. And he, it was, it was his, bat and ball it was his game you know it was his thing and he did it right he treated us very well and uh we had a great time on that tour and uh most of the ideas of anything that you see that is cool or clever or interesting were dave's ideas <laughs> and he, he, he's that's just the way he is he's quite a quite a quite a talent in many respects uh and i love his voice too but uh i'm forever grateful to him for giving me the break he did and uh doing that band with him and yeah uh, working with Steve Vai and Greg Bissonette and Brett Tuggle also, just dear, dear friends of mine and wonderful, supremely talented people. But we we, we did it with a tongue-in-cheek um, comedy too. You know, yeah. we didn't want to just, hey, watch this stuff. You know, we, you know we, we, as a matter of fact, the solos we did in the show, uh, the first couple of shows, I'd go out and do my bass solo, yeah, and Steve would do his solo later in the set, yeah, and we'd end the show, thank you very much. About two or three shows in, Dave called uh, me and Steve, and he goes, you know, the solo thing, it's not working for me. We go, oh, 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 what does that mean? He goes, it should be like a giant tractor pull, like you guys battle it out. So, you know, Steve, you go start, Billy, you run up behind him, grab his guitar, and mute it, and push him aside, and you play. And Steve, you push, and he orchestrated the whole battle thing. It was Dave's idea completely. And we did it, and people went crazy. Because now, like I said before about a bass solo, you want it, you want it for be musical but also in a live show you want some entertainment you're there to not see somebody staring at his shoes playing his amazing augmented diminished cemented chords and everything uh, you know we we, we went, so when we did that it was a supremely entertaining and funny and fun and steve and i had a blast doing it and uh it, it worked so thanks to dave he he uh created quite quite an entity with that eat him and smile band he did he did and and i'll you know i'll go on the record as saying um you got that all because of who you are um you know dave wanted consummate players that was clear because he could have picked anybody i mean he, he kind of could have commanded 
having a lot of people, I'm sure, envious of uh, and who would have lined up to audition there. Um, so there's a little bit of, I think, um, um, bi-directional like, goodness there. Uh, You're very kind. Uh, thank you. But yes, I mean, he, he uh, is, for, for all of his showmanship, there's no doubt the man's got a, a mind for business and, and uh, entertainment. Yep. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you also did, uh, and keep me honest on this, because I didn't see this, but you didn't, did you, or did you not tour with UFO? I did. Uh, 1970, oh no, no 1983 it was, I believe. Uh, I had previously played or tried to work with Michael Shanker on his first solo record. He flew me to England in uh, 79. Me and Denny Carmasi was a drummer from Montrose. And we went there and worked with uh, Michael. Unfortunately, Michael was in a bad state and a bad spot in his life, sadly. And he just didn't have it together. So we ended, we went home, we never went back. And he hired some other people later on. Uh, but, uh, But the UFO guys knew about me also. So when Pete Way quit in 83, uh, they called me to come do a European tour with them. So I did uh, all over Europe with uh, UFO. Uh, quite a quite an amazing thing. I'll, I'll sum it up by saying, when I got home from that tour, I went to the movies to see Spinal Tap, and it was not funny. <laughs> you know, because I had just lived on most of that. So I'm now when I see Spinal Tap, it's funny. But I remember sitting there in the movies thinking, oh, boy, it's exactly <laughs> what happened, you know. So we had a lot of, uh, but great guys, and I love UFO, and they're a great band. And unfortunately, a lot of bands get to a point where they're, you know, changing members, and you don't know if they're going to continue or not. And uh, I, they're really wonderful people, but it was just kind of falling apart, sadly. So yeah. it, I was there to kind of witness it to some degree. But but what a what a great honor, UFO, one of the best bands ever. I think I love them so much from the first time I heard them. So it was quite a quite a quite an eye opener, my first international tour. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we'll go back to some of the, the, the Japan thing in a minute, but before we get there, um, uh, I want to talk about Explorers Club. And I know that this is like maybe deep, deep archive stuff, but Trent Gardner, who's not with us anymore, who kind of, I think was instrumental in that pulling that whole thing together. Uh, you did a, you were on that age of impact record. Yeah. And that was, I remember I w- that was Magna Carta and yeah. they were, I mean, they were like the place for a lot of the real musicians to go and do really interesting music, sometimes with real progressive shadings. Um, and, and Trent was worked very closely with them. Um, and this record was really good. And I think I love that record. I love that I, record. I wish it had gotten a little bit, I mean, in a, in the progressive community, it was certainly known, but it, it didn't seem to go much further than that. But, um, you played with, I'm just going to read a few names. I mean, it had Terry Bozio, Steve Howe, John Petrucci, Matt Guillory, Derek Shrinian, um, James Labrie. I mean, this was this was like a powerhouse record, and it, it had this great conception. Do you, I mean, how did that come about? Were you, did you just get a call? Did, you know, did they, what, give us the story on that record. This is personal because I love it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I love that record. I think it was great. Now, the original versions, I wish they would put them out with Trent singing. Oh, wow. He yeah. And I loved his voice, but they wanted to go with a guy. Fine. He's the, uh, the, the guy that's singing is a fine singer as well. But I, I, I should talk with Mike Varney. I think he set that up. He's a guy who connected a lot of musicians with everyone. He found Eric Martin for me for Mr. Big. And he brought Ingve to America 
originally started a band with me before he went with uh, Alcatraz and or Steeler or whoever he was uh, with uh, that at that time. But anyway, uh, Mike Varney set that up, and I remember I went to the studio when it was recorded on uh, ADAT. So when you're, you, it was hard to really punch in and out. So I had to play a lot of the stuff full through with, without a mistake as much as as best I could. Yeah. Anyway, um, and that made it because now you can you know play one note. Give me a break. Do the second note. You know, you can kind of cheat your way through it if you want. But with ADATs, it's much harder to do that then. Uh, so it required me to, to step up to the plate and, and do a little bit better. So and playing with Terry Bozio on drums is amazing because he's, I, I, I'm all about the drums. I watch the drummer. People ask me about guitar player, guitar player, guitar player. And I'm, I'm, I'm hanging with the drummer. It's bass and drums. That's, that's where it's at. So play with someone like Terry in that uh, uh uh, context was wonderful. What a great, great player. Uh, but I remember doing it, uh, the, uh, engineer's name, it'll come to me, Bill Matoyer. And it was just he and I in there laying the bass down to the pre-recorded tracks on ADAT and, uh, sounded great. It was so amazing. I, I really loved that record. I should call Mike Varney and they should, they should do a reissue with the original singing on it. Cause it was fantastic. I loved it. Yeah, that would be that would be really fun, and there might be a, a broader audience for that now than there was back then. Certainly, a, I think so. cer yeah. certainly easier no, to. I know a lot of people. Now, when people come up to me after after the show with a sometimes a stack of CD covers this thick, and I and I go, "Are you sure I played on this?" And they go, "Yeah, look right there." I, I, I don't remember, but I don't often see Age of Impact in there. It's not it's it's, it's not as well known. So I should do a post about it sometime too and talk about it. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's, a, that's as, as the archivist, that would be a good one for you to expose for us. I might even have the demos that they gave me to learn the songs. I believe I do because I took all my cassettes, took about two dual cassette players, four players and all, they're all stereo. So it's eight tracks open up uh, Pro Tools, eight tracks of recording, hit Pro Tools record and then hit play and all of them had auto reverse too. So I digitized every cassette I had and I had a pile uh, three feet uh, uh, high yeah. and three feet wide of this. And I digitized all of them. So buried in there might be the original demos of that, which I, I now I'm inspired to, to find them. <laughs> Here's the thing too, man. Uh, um... All, there's so many of these people that were on this record who now are so much bigger than they were that if you start saying, hey, here's some early great music you may have missed and here's players, there's a – and because of the way we were talking about technology, right, when we were kind of putting the, this call together, there's a lot of people who could find out about that. And um, yeah. the music deserves it. It's, you know, that's a – I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I did that archiving yeah. with with everything i have video archives photo archives and audio archives that are quite extensive so a lot of stuff in there it's uh pretty amazing uh and so and some of it is very private too i i kept all my uh telephone answering machine messages oh. from various parts of the year and sadly last october we lost ed daniel and i went to uh, a bunch of calls a bunch of messages he left me over the years and oh wow what a, what a great great man i i was uh it was a, that was a tough day He's a, he's, um, you know, this is not uh, any profound thought, but he is a player that changed the instrument. Um, Absolutely. Um, 
and the band kind of changed the world. The whole world was skinny ties and synth and haircut 100. God bless them. Good, wonderful music. But suddenly Van Halen came along and yeah. <laughs> the whole thing changed again. And it happened a million times, you know, Elvis and everybody had grease in their hair. The Beatles came and everybody washed it out and got Beatle boots. And uh, the, the, the scene has changed many, many, many times yeah. through the years. It will continue to, I'm sure. Yeah, then there was, you know, I live in Seattle, so we helped in, in, implement all the grunge stuff. Absolutely. Um, I'm very, you know, to be honest with you, Billy, one of the reasons I do this show is I'm a musician myself, and I, uh, even though rock and metal still has a, a very permanent place, and in, in many regards bigger outside America, not just Japan, but in Europe than it is domestically, uh, there, I, I, I may be laboring under a misguided um assumption or or desire but i i feel like the music is still de is deserving of a broader audience than it's getting and this is because it, it has people who who labor at the craft the way you have to play um it's not all just sort of um composed in a daw it's um um so that's one thing the real songwriting um it, music that has this this canvas and i know i'm preaching the choir here but it has this canvas for everything from the thrill and the fun to stuff that's really sort of um meaningful and and cathartic and so i my from my corner of the world i'm i'm trying to find ways to present the music and um and and get it a, a broader audience and so uh, it, all of which comes to a question uh, this is a philosophical question but you're a part of and we're going to talk about those here in a minute um you're a part of some recent groups that have had some real success. I wonder from someone who's had, had been in so many groups over time uh, and different kinds of groups, where do you see the next potential inflection point for rock music? Is there, is there one? Is there? Well, I, I, uh, you know, an educated guess is uh, you're taking a shot at it, but uh, it may not be. But I do think once you get saturated in one thing, the opposite thing starts to become appealing. And right now, most pop music is just uh, kind of written by the same writers. A group of writers get together and they give it to one one hip hop, R and B singer, artist, whatever. And uh, all there's no musicians involved. Really, most of it all is programmed. So uh, uh, interesting with the pandemic too. Uh, sales of guitars, drums, keyboards, and home recording are through the roof. Yeah. There, uh, Gibson, Fender, DiMarzio, Yamaha banner years selling musical instruments so i think that's a good thing and a good sign and i think people want to i think it may come to pass just if history teaches us a lesson once you once that pendulum swings all the way one way it's got to come back again yeah. and so i can see the reality of actual players and singers uh doing it for real live maybe not in front of twenty thousand people maybe not in front of two thousand maybe in front of 200 or even 20 but it being something real yeah. and live. And uh, because I think at some point people will get hip to the idea that you can fake just about everything now. There's amazing drums and sound. That was all programmed. There's no drummer. There's no, there weren't any drums anywhere. You know, the bass is killing. Yeah, it's all uh, synth bass, you know, whatever. Vocals, yeah, they're all fixed. They're all pitch corrected. So, you know, the guy couldn't sing at all, but we got him, we got a great vocal out of him because we corrected it all. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, and that's that's not an invalid form of music. I want to be careful to not uh, disrespect it, because if you can make a piece of music that becomes a hit, I don't care how you did it or what you did it with, you just beat the whole system. Yeah. And you, 
congratulations. Yeah. Oh, no matter who it is uh, or, or how you do it. Uh, so it's, I believe it's all valid. Uh, I'm not uh, 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 be such an old man that I won't uh, look at uh, the new generation of uh, pop music and disrespect it. It's it, it. Some of it is quite nice. My wife listens to it all the time. And I go, who is that? Dua Lipa. Huh? That's pretty. You know, that's pretty <laughs> cool. Sounds good. You know. Uh, yeah. So, but I do think at some point it may come back to people actually playing and singing again, well, which here, would be be nice. Here's what I've said this before in this program, but I think part of it for me, and this sounds high minded, but it's. Um, there's there's the natural sort of pendulum, and we see that in everything. It's not just music; we see it in politics and everything else. That the pendulum just swings, but the the act of creating music, I think, is a necessary thing. And this isn't uh, like my just my idea, um, but I've worked on this idea in other capacities. I I I've mentioned this too before. I I did the novelization for the Astonishing, which was the Dream Theater concept record, recently, and the conceit there is that it's not simply that music can be manufactured. Because I think I saw a YouTube thing not too long ago that th an AI wrote a whole symphony. And I don't even doubt that it's probably a good symphony. But it's, it, the, it's more important than that, that the act of creating the music. You, you, like, even in this interview, you're holding your guitar. Like that, that process, I think, is important to humans. Not, and not all humans. But there's, you know, used to be that um, part of your ed liberal education was had to take some music. You know, there had, yeah. that was arts was part of it. Yeah, I uh, will go out on a limb here, and I've seen many philosophers back me up on this, uh, Schopenhauer in particular, but that music is the greatest art form. And uh, it's, it's the only art form which includes uh, the viewer or listener to become part of it. Because when you listen to music, you're creating in your mind a pictorial version of what it is, who it is, how it's sounding, some other scenarios. So we actually become part of the creative process. Yeah. And uh, that it, to include the audience, not that you don't when you see a, a painting or architecture or cinema, but cinema takes a lot of that visualization away from you. Uh, you, 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 you're, you're shown what it is they're talking about. And, and uh, you, you, your creativity is uh, stultified to some degree. Uh, Good word, by the way. Yes, and you can be, uh, you can either be uh, challenged or seduced. And challenging music generally is challenging because you're challenged to figure it out, create in your mind what it means, how it sounds. Uh, where cinema is more seduction, like wow, a car crash, and look how fast that goes, and computer-generated animation, the, the most fantastic scenes. They're a little bit different. So, uh, as an art form, I, I look at music. Uh, as the the greatest art form yeah. and i that being said humans and art are are very very uh that's a very important connection and it has been ever since the the first ape picked up a charred stick out of the fire and scratched scratch it on the stone you know art and the creating of images and sounds and uh the imagination uh uh being set free uh, supremely important to people's well-being, mental health, and intelligence, I think, as well. Yeah, I 100% I agree. And I think uh, to take it like one step, or at least add to one thing that you said, is with, with music, um, you can, it, not only are you inviting the person to participate, but they, 
um, there doesn't even need to be a, a, a there's like no language barrier. I mean, yes, there's music that's sung in a different language, but just recently I've, I've watched some videos of, um, you know, the, there's all these music contest shows now. And I was watching some foreign um, versions of that where I didn't understand the language, but the music, even, even the lyrical um, component of it is touching. Like you, you yeah. can have a reaction to it um, in a way that if you can't read, I, I'm a fiction writer. I also write books. Um, and I love that, that form of art. But if you can't read the language, it's, it's not accessible. Music's not that way. Music it can be played and everybody can hear it and sort of co-create with it the way you were talking. Absolutely. Yeah, universal. And uh, it's a great uh, uh, way to spread a language. Uh, when it, we, we go to Japan, everybody's singing along with the lyrics. They don't know what they mean necessarily. A lot of good English speakers in Japan, of course, this is quite a popular second language. But uh, and in Indonesia or Thailand, people we go to in India, uh, people coming up to us, oh, I'm the one who wants, you know, they, they know the songs and they know the, the, the meaning of them and spreads. Uh, I, I, I like to see uh, bridges between people, especially when there's a language barrier or a cultural barrier. I like to see those things bridged, have the ability to cross back and forth across that bridge both ways. Yeah. And uh, music certainly, I think, has been the, one of the greatest uh culturalizing, civilizing, uh, spreader of goodness <laughs> forces in the world. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And that now that you've brought up um, Mr. Big and this transmissibility of, of the music with foreign speaking, you guys had a ton of success domestically, meaning the United States. But you had maybe even more success in Japan. Um, did you not? And Asia Pacific, like you guys were giants there even even when mr big wasn't always in radio rotation domestically we were uh we did it a little differently some bands think oh you go to japan automatically they're just gonna love you there's no problem so they go there and they do a half-ass show and they never got ass back again yeah. we didn't look at it like that at all we go we're going to japan this is great so we did we, we hit it even harder not we don't hit it hard every show but we knew we, we and we connected i don't know how i don't know why but we connected with that with that audience and we got there early and stayed late, shook every hand, uh, kissed every baby, signed every autograph, took every photo in the lobby of the hotel. We took care of fans. So we get, before the internet, we'd, um, we'd get little uh, envelope uh, messages. And in the envelope is a pen for you to answer with, stationary, and a stamped addressed envelope so you can send it to them. Wow. So uh, that's, they're very smart at that. And so they'd leave them up on the soundboard. And I get a pile, a huge pile. And we learned don't answer them till the last night because if you do, then they'll send you another one and it doubles your workload. So we because <laughs> there's a practicality of the fact we needed sleep occasionally. So I sit there uh, and answer everyone and put a pick in there and you know sign it and send them all out. Get, take them down to the front desk as we were checking out, and, you know, and they would they take care of them for me. Wonderful people, so, so generous of their time and, and uh, skills. So. Uh, we we hit it hard and we made a lot of great friends and we played all over japan too most bands go tokyo osaka goodbye we played tokyo osaka nagoya up uh, uh north sapporo niigata on the west coast uh kagoshima down south near an active volcano okinawa uh, all over uh, japan so it was quite uh in-depth uh, penetration to uh, the culture for us i remember playing in a hotel that the numbers on the 
on the doors were in Japanese. So you had to remember, now what room are you in? I'm in the three things and a stick through it and then another <laughs> over here. <laughs> oh, and, then, and of course, inevitably, we ended up walking to the wrong room or something. But uh, and uh, the funny thing, though, if you if you uh, if you will, um, it wasn't just in Japan, though. In Brazil, we had 100,000 people on uh, uh, Santos Beach outside of Sao Paulo. Uh, in Italy, there was at one point five Mr. Big Copy bands, uh, German, Spanish, uh, Scandinavian Mr. Big Copy bands. So we we did really well outside of America, which went the whole world went uh, flannel uh, grunge. Uh, and it was a change I think needed to happen, too. Uh, it didn't happen as much outside of USA as it did in. It did, and certainly in some places in Europe. Yeah. But, but in Japan, they didn't get it. So we, we actually were still doing great, uh, uh, having great success there and in South America and what have you. So it's an interesting thing. We're, we're very fortunate to have early on uh, gone to all those places. And it, it wasn't always easier. Remember, first time in Korea, it was tough. You know, the facility wasn't didn't have it together, sound and lights, it was a problem. Now, Korea, in competition with Japan, they go, oh, yeah, Japan, you think you can do that? Watch this. And now their venues are spotless and perfect, and the sound and lights are awesome, and their hotels are as good as it gets, you know. Yeah. So, we, uh, but initially, it was, a, it was a tough time, you know. It was, a, it was not an easy, uh, cushy tour, but yeah. we did it anyway, and it really uh, paid off for us. The way it really paid off is we, we got friends everywhere now. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And I, I, I didn't mean to suggest you guys didn't have uh, success domestically. You, you did. And, um, but yeah, I, I, I have a note here that I took that you guys, um, I think you were in support for Aerosmith, but you, you played three straight nights at Wembley. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge venue. A big place. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we did the Get a Grip tour, European Get a Grip tour with Aerosmith. Great bunch of people. Wonderful guys. Every night, Stephen hit his note, nailed it. He'd get in early, run the stairs of the arena, uh, warm up, warm up, warm up, go on stage, kill, get done. They'd wrap in a blanket, throw him on the tour bus, and next day repeat. He was just a, a rock. He was great on that tour. And uh, the whole band was really wonderful to us. We got there our first show. The equipment truck hadn't shown up yet. And so they already offered to, for us to use their gear for the show. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, it came to the last minute, but it was pretty cool of them. They were wonderful people. I love that band. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you guys definitely have the reputation of being uh, um, hardworking. Um, and, it, you know, so the meaning the success was earned. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a bunch, it wasn't um, fabricated. We didn't, we didn't win the lottery. <laughs> yes. Yes. You, you worked your way there. Um, I want to talk just for a moment about niacin. Great. Uh, oh, my gosh, dude. This might have been um, the most revelatory part of you that I didn't know about until you agreed to talk to me. And I went and spent a bunch of time with this music. It's another area of your musical life that I think is um, criminally under sort of recognized. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow. It's tough to have a guitar in the band. A lot of people don't want to pay. We decided to use a B3 uh, for the uninitiated. A B3 is the sound of... Uh, Give me some lovin' by Spencer Davis group. It's, it was used heavily in the Beatles and Zeppelin and Vanilla Fudge, Emerson, Lincoln Palmer. Yes, yeah, so B3 was an instrument that just was so universal. And I remember in the very, very early days, it was more important to have a B3 player than a guitar player in your band. 
because you know, if you're going to do copy songs, you had to have a B3 because it was in everything. Yeah. So, so I did, uh, so a friend of mine played B3 and we talked about doing a, a, some songs with a drummer and he goes, oh, who's your favorite drummer? I go, no, Dennis Chambers. Who's yours? He goes, Dennis Chambers. And Dennis Chambers is the, uh, the greatest musician I know on any instrument. He is just a phenomenon of nature and a wonderful guy. But as a drummer, wow. You'll see the top list, you know, Vinnie Cagliota, uh, uh, a couple other, sorry, my, my, my memory. But anyway, the, the, my, my poorly uh, voiced uh, point is Dennis is always at least at the top. And if you ask the other guys who their favorite is, it's almost always Dennis. So yeah. he, quite, quite awesome. So he really helped make that project uh, come to life. He would come in and he lay down, you know, 15 tracks in a day perfectly you know just uh, amazing and uh, i've been in touch with him lately he's doing great and uh he's just a what a wonderful incredible man on top of a brilliant playing but that's a funkified blues and jazz thing and the keyboard player is more of a jazz guy so i don't i i'm not jazz i don't i don't i don't know that <laughs> i can i played a lot of jazz when i was very young uh not really knowing what i was doing but i liked it and so it it, it really push me to have to come up with ways to approach the instrument to fit in with what's going on there. And uh, for that, I'm, I'm really grateful that uh, it, it forced me to have to figure it out. Here's this passage. What do you play? I have no idea. <laughs> well, well, let's get to work. The result is um, amazing. I, I want folks who aren't familiar with this music, even if sort of jazz and fusion and that, and blues and stuff is not your first love from a genre perspective. Uh, you owe it to yourself to go take a look and, and listen to this music. It's, uh, it's just so musically um, refreshing and beautiful. And uh, it's, it's surprising as you listen to it because, you know, um, you guys as players are, are doing some really interesting things. It's, it's, it's non-standard from the standpoint that we know you from, all the great stuff in Mr. Big and, and David Lee Roth. Um, but this music like doesn't, it doesn't it's not like that. <laughs> not like that. And, but it's, um, but the musicianship is there and the, and the music that it's, uh, yeah, like it, it was, we wanted to, some jazz, Jeff, great bass player, Jeff Berlin, who was a jazz expert explained to me one time. And I believe I, I agree with him on this. There's jazz that's in and there's jazz that's out. Out is wild, you, you you know, unless you're really a musical aficionado tuned in and and, and very uh, well versed in what's going on, you're 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 lost unless you just happen to like the sound of it. And then there's jazz that's in that makes sense. It's more of a you know, traditional arrangements and chord changes yeah. that make that that would appeal to almost everyone. So we try to stay that way a little bit with Nice and to keep it uh, accessible. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, I not only am I, uh, I don't dislike jazz that's out. I do listen to it once in a while, but I can only take so much. And I know a, a lot of other people are, are don't don't get it. Yeah. And it's a, a jazz is a thing. You kind of have to you have to know what your educated educated listeners uh, for jazz are, are a must. Where some things you can you can move the other way a little bit. So we kind of stayed that way to some degree. Yeah, it's, I think you achieved that. I think it's accessible while also being, I think, satisfying for a seasoned jazz listener. Um, to your point, I think jazz is kind of like Shakespeare. 
it's intimidating. The, the cadence isn't understandable with the language. But once you start to sort of dial in how to, how to hear Shakespeare, you start to recognize the genius. This, the Snyason music exactly. is like that. Uh, it, um, yeah, so I want people to go, I want people to go take a listen to this. It's, uh, it's, it, it may actually be a gateway into jazz for you. I, I'm not a deep theory musician. I can't listen to jazz music and understand all of the musical theory that's right. underpinning it. Yeah. But every time I go to yeah. New York, there's a jazz club I go to. And they're doing music, I think, that families well with what you guys did in that it's accessible. But clearly, like, the, like these guys are not um, – and some of it's improvisational. But th this is um, – it's, like, it's accessible, but it's also really musical. And um, uh, they're pushing their own limits. Like, there's just some great musicianship. And that's what this is. So, I don't know. Is there going to be more niacin music, or is that – um, a thing of the past. I to do another record. Uh, unfortunately, now it's really tough to get a budget to pay for the things you need to pay for uh, to do a record. We don't need much money at all, and we just so we we so there will be some label out there that'll give us a, a couple hundred bucks for gas so we can we can get up and <laughs> record the, <laughs> You know, so it should be. Uh, it, I hope it happens because I, I love that band, and it was a real uh, challenge for me. I I really had to, you know, I would sit down at a nice and show. I sit down and play. You know, I don't usually a bar stool or something, and I got to plant my feet and get ready. Here we go. This is it. Ready? Three, four. Ah! You know, it was, it was it was tough, but uh, good. I love that. I love that kind of challenge uh, to play to. Pretty cool. Now you um you became I I don't know maybe it preceded it, but certainly um, worked with Richie Cochin in the Mr. Big days. He came in later. Yeah. Um, and is that is that the connection to Winery Dogs? Like, was it that musical association carried over and when? To some degree. I knew Richie before he was in uh, Mr. Big, too, for quite a while. And I always knew him as being a supreme talent and yeah. just great. And uh, then when he was in Mr. Big, uh, his voice is so great. Uh, it's, it's so amazing. So he had kind of two lead singers. So that got a little awkward at time. So uh, that that ended. But then... Uh, I, I work with when Richie would jam around LA, I'd usually go out and get up and play a song with him or something. He's always been a dear friend of mine. I love him completely. <coughs> Pardon me. And uh, he uh, was opening up for the Stones uh, in Japan solo. So he asked me if I wanted to join him. So I did. And we went over there and we did uh, uh, about five uh, shows with the Stones uh, for just the Richie Cusson opening for, for the Stones. But I always kept in touch. So when Mike Portnoy got in touch with me, well, let's, let's do a band, you know, find a guitar player, singer, and uh, Eddie. Tr and I don't know why I didn't think of Richie, because they would have been my first choice, but first I blanked on it. And Eddie Trunk suggested, what about Richie Cosney? I got, oh, of course. Yeah. So we all went over to Richie's house, and that's how Winery Dogs came to be. And he's, he's been just uh, spectacular. I always said, uh, the one thing that ever gets accomplished from the Winery Dogs is the people of the world learn that Richie's a superstar. <laughs> Because he is. He's just a great player, singer, songwriter, performer, and uh, as good as it gets. Yeah, he's very he's very gifted. And that, that first record uh, was um, not, I mean, unsurprisingly from the standpoint that the caliber of talent in the band is there, but like really well received. I mean, it had some chart it's positions right. on Billboard at 27. I know the fan reaction, like people who um, know, knew all of you guys from other things um, or maybe didn't. And then they heard this music. It was like, uh, I mean, even remember Eddie Trunk talking about this on that metal show, how much he yeah, liked Eddie, it. 
instrumental in uh, launching the band. He was so kind to us. He's been that to many, many bands. He's a, he's a national treasure. Yeah. Uh, really, really great. But yeah, the first record did very, very well. Uh, second record, uh, even better. Yeah. So uh, we're working on a third one now. And uh, hopefully that'll, that'll happen uh, relatively soon. So you, I know I saw some uh, Instagram posts. You guys have done some some recording, and you're going back soon to do more. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. We went and uh, we wanted to write again, going back to a traditional way together in a room. And we sat down and what do you got? How about this? What are that? That's cool. That sounds kind of like a chorus. What are, you know? Put the, put it together and you know hit record for make a little demo of it. Go back reconfigure. You know, write like uh, I got. I'm making no comparison at all. Don't don't ever make that mistake. I got. Uh, bootlegs of the Beatles writing and they're in a room and you know, you know, what do you think, you know, and they come up with an idea and so many bands did it like that as well. But that was traditionally how you would write as a band. You're all together in a room and figure stuff out. So after we'd done the first and second record, uh, record tour, record tour, we thought, well, if we continue like this, it could get pretty stale because, uh, you, you get pressured, it's time to put another record out and then you got to go on tour right away. Let's go live our lives and do our thing and go enjoy ourselves and reconvene here a little later, and which is what we're doing now, and we'll have uh, stories to tell yeah. and adventure, adventures to uh, to uh, express that we've all been through. And uh, so it, it, it works out better uh, writing-wise for us that so we took a little break. And the band was always together, we, and we always knew we were going to do this. But uh, it was refreshing because now back again, I'm happy to report when we were together recently a couple weeks ago, we had a blast we had a great time went out and had a great meal every night and hanging out and talking and telling our telling our stories yeah. of all our adventures and it's reflecting in the music i think it's going to be a very well received is there uh is it too soon to know any timing on that yeah yeah we don't know uh, uh again we i i'm not a, a guy that plans much we and the winery dogs certainly that's true there you know just kind of a Record is done. Okay. Well, I guess it's coming out now. You know, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we're, we're not really sure. Musicians in general, uh, I, <laughs> I, I only speak for myself to be fair to musicians who might have it together. Uh, I, I suspect some do, but, uh, you know, I, I'm just kind of a, a rudderless ship on a windless sea, you know, and just kind of <laughs> floating along. And, oh, there's a show. And, uh, you know, we don't, not a lot of planning or figuring or configuration going on. We just kind of let nature take its course. And I, for me, I think that's the best way too, because it, it really, as an art, it takes on a natural life of its own and yeah. calculating and scheming and figuring and slide ruling uh, to get things done. I, I'd rather let, let nature take its course again. Yeah, I, I, I like that approach. And I, I'm sure it's there's there'll be freshness in the record for all of that. Um, the other so and, and the other sort of touch point with Portnoy is the other group that is doing really well right now. And that's Sons of Apollo. Yeah, that's a blast to play in five guys. So uh, I pull back. Yeah, uh, I, I hold back and play uh, with Mike. Of course, I love playing bass with Mike Stroming. It's a riot. We have a blast. This ESP thing, he'll chicka dicka dicka da, and I at the same time I chicka dicka dicka da, and I go, how did you know? How did you know? <laughs> automatically together, like ESP, it's it's spooky at times. It's really really uh, enjoyable. One of my favorite things about performing live, uh, Derek Sherini on keyboards, fantastic. Uh, Bumblefoot, what a supreme talent, yeah. and running the band, uh, Jessica Soto, what a great voice, and it, not a hint of lead singer's disease. He's the nicest, easiest hardworking 
polite, cool, friendly, funny guy you could imagine. So uh, it's, it's, it makes it for an enjoyable time. Yeah, you guys, that, that um, I mean, again, another kind of super group, um, but, but sometimes super groups don't land with songwriting chemistry. And the first Sons of Apollo record was very, very well received. And I know you guys have been, when, when it permits, you guys have toured. I think you've got some tour dates scheduled for next year. Is that right? I believe so. Uh, hopefully they will happen. Right. Uh, still some uncertainties, but I do know 2022 is looked at now by most managers, agents, and bands that are going to be as the, when things are going to start to actually happen again. So yeah. hopefully that. And there's and you guys have done um, two records, two, two studio records, yeah. and then the one live with the symphony. Yeah, that's right. Is there is there any? I mean, probably at some point, but a third record, or is that just not even too soon to plan? Uh, a little too soon. Unfortunately, the pandemic started just as we launched the second record. Yeah. We had a little bad luck on our part, sadly. So uh, we're caught between, well, should we continue touring behind the second record or we do a third one? So I so said, we'll see. The, again, nature will take its course and the answer yeah. will reveal itself to us at some point. Well, I'm hoping that you guys do a domestic leg of that tour. I feel like what I saw before was was foreign dates. Um because I've never seen you guys live, and I live in Seattle, so I'm hoping that there'll be when you guys do that tour, you'll come through our town. Oh, I, I'd love to absolutely, yeah. It's a riot to play live. It's pretty challenging. There's some parts that are really, really tough, and I have to. Mike and I look at each other like, "Okay, here we go. <laughs> See you at the end." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, generally, about five or six shows in, we start to hit it because <laughs> it's a. Uh, it takes a while to translate between what you know, what you could record, what you could do in the rehearsal room yeah. or the, uh, the the studio where you're practicing for a tour to actually pull it off on stage. It's a whole other level sometimes. And uh, it, it unfortunately takes a few gigs to do it. We managed to fake our way through the first couple uh, without too many people knowing uh, <laughs> blunders. <laughs> you learn how to cover up. A mistake is an essential thing for any musician because you're playing live. You're going to make a mistake and you got to smile your way through it or look at somebody else and they think it was him, you know, so <laughs> there's all kinds of ways around that. But, but that jump to actual performing it live uh, does, when it does come, it's supremely gratifying that you, when you pull that stuff off as, as it was intended, as it is on the record. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll be, I've said this before, but as you know, you always love to see a great performance live, but the, the inaccuracies are are part of the charm, and I don't mean that in a sort of trivial way. I like it's true. You 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 know you're hearing real musicians doing something live, and I not maybe not everybody loves that, but I I love that. And and you know to be honest, sometimes you'll see some eye communication between the musicians where someone's done a thing, and there's a smile, and you're just like part being part of that it, as a as a yeah. listener is I, I I enjoy it. That's cool. Yeah. Well, it was several times I've made a glaring mistakes and i'll just raise my hand there it was me <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome here thank you i'll be here <laughs> well you know one of the things i i um i applaud you for is you stay sort of active in in um you know answering this uh call to to talk to me with people who are wanting to learn you do some inst uh, instructional stuff through your youtube channel you're, you're also involved in this rock and roll fantasy camp I saw. Um, and that's, I mean, isn't that essentially what it is? You're, you're training the next generation of rock musicians and some of the, the brass tacks. Yeah. To some degree, one, one uh, young lady I had in one of my band camp 
camps. Her name was uh, Madame Mayhem, as she calls herself. And I ended up producing a record with her. Ray Legere played drums on it and uh, came out great. Uh, and uh, she went on. So now she's, you know, she, of course, she's off for the pandemic, but she's toured around, toured with a bunch of big bands and has a career. So that was kind of a cool result. It's happened several times out of the uh, rock and roll fantasy camp. But basically, it's just they gave me five or six players, singers, and I've got to make a band out of it and get them rehearsed up and get a song going and then get them on stage and have them perform it as the grand finality, uh, finale of the, uh, of the camp. And uh, sometimes you're, you get guys that can't play at, I mean, almost at all. And you have to, you have to work with them and it's quite a challenge. And by the way, my bands always win. Every time I've been, my band win. <laughs> no, I have no way I'm letting them not win. <laughs> and, uh, but we've, I've, we've been an amazing emotional uh, trip to see people get to the point where they get up on stage and perform in a band that they're playing. And I've seen uh, tears and nervous breakdowns and uh, panic attacks and freak outs. Uh, an amazing emotional change people go through when they when they're when they're, when they're put through that that procedure. It's quite uh, quite amazing. Uh, the um, uh, I did one recently here in Nashville, and there was a gentleman who was the, uh, I think, number one gynecological surgeon in Canada. Is that a right? Wonderful man, a Chinese uh, gentleman, and he was a piano player. And he could play, but as far as getting up and play a song with a band, especially uh, where you got to go, nah, 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 you know, and, and, and I go, well, the part of the song is, duh, 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 duh. I think we're doing a... a uh, Elton John, da, 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 da. I forgot the name of the uh, uh, song. Anyway, an Elton John, he's got the na, 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 on the piano thing, and the guys go, "I can't do that. My my hands will fall off." I go, "Well, let's let's get to work." So I don't play keyboards, but I know enough to coach somebody through. And we got him there. And we got, got it. end of the thing. He's up on stage playing the song, and no one was more blown away than him that he, he pulled it off. It was incredible to see, and uh, that happens a lot. And then I do a lot of uh, master classes. I'm not a teacher. I, I, I uh, don't give lessons, but in a master class, I can show you what I did, how I got there, and then maybe take a look at you and see if there's anything I can interject that might help you along on your path. Yeah. And it's they've been very successful in that I hear back and I stay in touch with all the people I do master classes with generally, uh, hear back from them a month later and they say, man, I, I, everything's different. I got it. It's you know I'm 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 now notice a change. I notice things getting better. I notice uh, you know my understanding of what's going on better, and that that's my goal is to, to bring about that result. So it's, it's wonderful to see, and and I love helping my fellow musicians in any capacity. But when I can do something along those lines, it's uh, very gratifying. Yeah, everything you said there like is gold. Um, there's you know, performing something that you worked on live, that's a magical experience. So helping someone get there is, has to be so rewarding. Um, yeah. But, uh, I think they did a movie on a fantasy camp and they documented a lot of the, uh, the things people go through. I mean, you know, some people storm out and leave and they never come back. And some people are in tears with tears dripping off their chin and worried that they can't do it. And the other band members encouraging them and you create this camaraderie of the, of a, of a, almost like a real gr group, you know, and yeah. they stay in touch with each other over the years. And I just played on the track for one gentleman. Uh, it was a cute, great keyboard player uh, in one of our bands we did in Las Vegas. 
uh, and uh, of course that band won won the uh, show too. We did Whipping Post and he sang it and he just uh, sent me a, a prog track from a band called PFM, Italian progressive band from back in the uh, 70s. And I played bass on this track for him. We got Bumblefoot on guitar and so. Oh, wow. We stay in, I stay in touch with a lot of those guys and uh, all my masterclass uh, attendees as well, very much. Yeah, that's really cool, man. I, I, um, just as a shout out to that, you know, you're you're in good company there. Um, the the camp's got uh, Dave Mustaine and Nico McBrain and Steve Morse and um, Don Moyer. Like, there's a lot of really like quality people there. Um, Good bunch of guys and uh, and the counselors. We have a great time together too. I, I've been there with a, a lot of different uh, guys and uh, and they bring uh, other guys in once in a while. I uh, uh, I never uh, had played with uh, Sammy Hagar before, hmm. and uh, he came in and he with Eddie Trunk in front of the whole uh, camp was uh, doing interviewing and and Sammy was talking. One of the guys in the in the in my band that I'm counseling raises his hand. I didn't know he was going to do this. He goes to Sammy, Sammy, why don't you get uh, Billy Shannon up here to play his song? And I go, <laughs> and so Sammy goes, yeah, sure. Come on up. I go, holy cow. Bucket list. And we got up. He goes, well, what Montrose songs do you know? And I go, all of them. <laughs> so he did Space Station number five. And it was uh, how amazing. I, I love that first Montrose record so much. So at that point, uh, I would actually became the only guy who ever played with every member of Van Halen. Oh, so wow. Played with Mike. Played with Alan Ed, played with Dave, played with Gary Sharon, played with uh, Sammy. And then Wolfie, I didn't actually play music with, but one time on a flight home from benefit show I did, along with Ed Van Halen, uh, we, uh, uh, he picked up his son on the way and he wanted to sleep on a flight home. So I played with his son. I got some paper and we were drawing, doing number games and drawing animals and things like that. And he was sleeping away. He's looking over and goes, yeah, you'd make a good father. I said, go back to sleep. We're good. So I technically I played with Wolfie. So I, now I played with uh, every member. I'm very honored. Yeah, <laughs> man, that's, that's a funny story. And yeah, you it, like music with all of those guys. Um, and to, to kind of put a bow on that, uh, this is everything we've talked about, um, the, the longevity of your career, the the players who we all know and regard with affection for their ability and their music that you've you've played with, either because you founded a group or because they've wanted your participation and then the, the groups have had this success. Uh, um, and and because just the facility with the, the instrument um, and the diversity of music, it's why I regard you as uh, um, one of those those bass players. You've kind of changed the instrument, and you've inspired generations of bass players to play. And I don't, I'm not saying that just because you're on the show. Like as I was coming up and being in bands, the bass players that I played with always used your name as a north star in 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 their wow. quest to play the instrument. That's wonderful. They're very kind. Thank you. Yeah. Well, those bass players that did it to me too growing up, Tim Bogart. Uh, Paul Samuel Smith of the Yardbirds, uh, Jack Cassidy, Jack Bruce, Ant Whistle, of course. Uh, and uh, one time I got so tired of people asking me, who are your influences? So I wrote them all down, like on my MySpace page. That's how long ago that was. <laughs> you had to stroll for quite a while to get through my, who, who influenced me and all the great bass players and other musicians too. But it's, it's if, if it is the case that I have done something similar to another generation or younger players, I'm very, very happy to hear. I, yeah, it's uh, I don't think that's a, a debate 
uh, I appreciate your modesty, but I don't think that that's a uh, in question. Uh, and and you know, this is not a greatest hits. This you know, you're still an active musician in two of you know <laughs> the 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 uh, two of the I think most well regarded rock groups that are working. Um, so there's that. Uh, I have only two questions for you um, to close out. Um, so we know you're working on the Winery Dogs record. Is there anything else you're working on that we can anticipate that's for you musically that's kind of next? I produced a singer-songwriter here in Nashville. His name is John Statham. I'm, I'm living in Nashville now, but I'm not a country guy. It's not my thing. I am not. The, the Rick Rubin record with the Johnny Cash, pretty amazing. But still, I'm not a, necessarily a, a country guy. Yeah. Uh, great. It's just not my thing. Sure. And but this guy is a little bit of a country story song kind of a guy, song style of story. And I heard a couple of his songs. I said, "Man, if you got, if you got any more of these, if you got, if you got ten of these, I'll. We should do a record together." So we ended up sending me forty-five songs that he had written. Uh -huh. All uh, oh, just great, and uh, I play them for people, and they, people have tears in their eyes. Listen to some of these songs, unreal. So Ray Legere did the drums again. He's not a country guy either, but he 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 concentrated his Legereism down into this sphere of of uh, time and groove, and just a just a beautifully treated uh, uh, musicality that he does on, on this record. And we brought a bunch of locals in, a slide guitar, just genius slide guitar, uh, pedal steel guitar player, violin player, mandolin. And we uh, the record's just just mixed. And uh, so that should be out relatively soon. And we're just also finishing up mixes on the new Talus record. Oh, wow. That uh, sadly, we lost our lead singer after he completed the vocals. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Phil Narrow, wonderful, wonderful guy. What a great voice. He killed on the record, too. It was so great. But we knew going in there was a little problem. We didn't know how big it was. And then sure enough, when the record was done, we found out. And uh, sadly, we lost him recently. I posted about it. And uh, so we're, we're hoping this record is really a tribute to his legacy. Yeah. Wonderful guy, great songwriter, amazing vocalist, and uh, uh, taken way too soon. Yeah. terrible yeah. thing but sure. that record will be out that that those mixes are just finishing up right now so that'll be out pretty soon too okay good wow that's just a I, I somehow i had missed that that was on its way that's really cool yeah um, we did that. we went back and we took our songs from from when i left the band summer of 85 uh to go with dave we had all these songs that we'd never recorded and we the talk initially was well we should bring them up to date and like redo the lyrics and they go wait let's do them exactly like we did them back then yeah. and don't go an update let's do it like a little time capsule we'll play it the same guys doing those songs again recorded the right way and that's the whole idea behind the record is that let's just be real and play it and the drummer mark miller is as awesome as ever uh, mike portnoy posted a picture of himself in his first rehearsal that would become dream theater wearing a towel shirt because ah. because he's a Mark Miller fan. Ray Lugier also tells a story back in Pittsburgh, his friends to get some shaky handheld video of Mark Miller playing drums and they'd all sit around and watch a wobbly screen and freak out over Mark. What an amazing drummer he, he is to this day. So his performance on there is pretty awesome too. We got our original uh, guitarist that we had in that lineup, Mitch Perry. He brought two songs into the band. We recorded both of them with him on guitar. Fantastic job by Mitch. 
and another guitarist we use uh, also uh, uh, in the, from the Rochester uh, area. His name is Curie, and he's uh, uh, did the lion's share of the rest of the stuff as well. So very excited about the new Talos record. Uh, it's a uh, sad but happy situation. You know, we lost Phil sadly, but uh, this record I think will 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 really uh, lay the foundation of his legacy, which is quite awesome. Yeah, that's a good sort of testimony to him to have that as a, you know, a living, breathing document. Um, exactly. Exactly yeah, right. So yeah. Um, the last question is this. Uh, gosh, you've accomplished so much, but I like to ask, um, ask musicians if there's another mountain they want to climb. And by that, I mean, is it, it could be it could be musical, be like, you know, I always wanted to write a musical theater show or it could be. Creatively, I always wanted to be a sculptor, but it, it could also be I've always wanted to race cars. I'm, I'm just interested in some flavor. Is there anything like, gosh, you're so busy, but if, if you had a window of time to do something else, is there a thing that you hold in regard for a, a moment in time, you know, if you had the time? Well, mostly I would default right away to music and yeah. getting into something other than the music I normally listen to and try and doing more on bass and learning. Recently, I've been, uh, there's a couple of pieces of music that I was falling behind on, and I didn't know why. Rocco Presti, a great bass player for Tower of Power. He's a, he does ticka, 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 picking thing. And I do it with, he did it with two fingers, I do it with three. But mine kind of fell apart. So I spent hours and hours and hours rebuilding my whole three finger technique thing. Oh, wow. and and going after that. So something along the, that nature where uh, I just try to discover more because there's, it's just an unlimited adventure. There's a little chunk of wood with four wires on it. And it, it, you can spend lifetime after lifetime after lifetime pursuing it and still not cover it up, which is pretty cool. Aside from that though, a lot of people have been pressuring me in a good way to write a book because I got a lot of stories, not only stories about music and the music biz, but growing up and the dogs I had and catching snakes and frogs and what it was like. And so many aspects that uh, when I do tell stories, uh, my dad was a storyteller, recitationist. Uh, he was an Irishman, the gift of gab. He would tell stories and recite poems as a young man. Oh, wow. and so we were kids, our dad would tell us these stories and we'd laugh, even though we knew the punchline already, we'd laugh like crazy. Just amazing to hear him spin this tale and the visions it created in our mind. So I picked it up from him to some degree. So either telling a long, a long form joke or relating true stories that actually happened uh, after a couple of glasses of wine or something, they start coming out. Uh, people always say, you got to write that down. You got to write, you got to write. So at some point I might want to try my hand at uh, writing a book. I'm an avid reader and I, I understand, like I'm an avid listener to music. It helped me, my composition in music, being an avid reader, I believe might uh, translate to my ability to get what I'm trying to say down into words, uh, which, which is which is an art in itself. Yeah. Uh, that, I hope to try to, to do something with that. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's a, even just in this conversation we've had, you've uh, certainly um, made it clear that you know how to spin a yarn. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. So yeah. I, yeah, I think you, sh you know, um, if you can fit it in and in and amongst all the music projects, I think that would be fun. Yeah, and that's something I could kind of do anytime. While I'm on the plane, it's yeah. my iPad or a laptop, and I'm a big fan of. Uh, Bill Bryson is a modern author that I, he's hilarious and a genius. 
and uh, he wrote a book called uh, Short History of Nearly Everything, which is basically a science book, yeah. but an award-winning science book, but just brilliant the way he put it together. And he's also absolutely hilarious. You mentioned Shakespeare before. I've never been into Shakespeare. I know nothing about it. It's not my thing. I'm not attracted to it in any way, shape, or form. So I'm in an airport in Santiago, Chile, and there's an English section of books. And the only book of Bill Bryson's I hadn't read is his book on Shakespeare. So I know I'm about to get on a plane for 16 hours. Okay, I bought it. Utterly fascinating and hilarious. His book on Shakespeare. Uh, just just brilliant how, how he put I it together. I have to look that up. I haven't seen that one. And a lot of it was the underpinnings of the entertainment industry and how it started because of those plays and how they put them on had a lot to do with staging and performance and uh, what have you. A pretty interesting uh, take on it. But uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. So when I when I read a book like that, I think, man, if I could ever do an eighth as good as this, I'd be very pleased. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a little project for you in between uh, in between gigs and writing records. I might have to wait for a couple of people to pass away first before I start writing about them though. So uh, sharing, sharing the skeletons. <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, this has been so much fun and illuminating. Um, I'm sure it's been for our viewers and for folks who'll watch this later on YouTube and elsewhere. So I'm going to spend the rest of the day playing a some ZZ Top in memory of our dear oh, friend. Very good. What a what a what a what a loss! What a great man! What an amazing band! So, you know, I, when your viewers see this, uh, maybe several days pass. But uh, uh, my condolences to the rest of, of uh, to Billy Gibbons and Frank Beard and all the fans for sure. Yeah, I, that's a really. I don't play uh, bass, but um, I'll go. I'm going to go turn on some ZZ Top in memoriam. Uh, yeah. Beautiful. Well, tell you what, um, if you'll just stick on the on the call just long enough for me to say a personal goodbye, I'll play the outro for the folks that are on the stream. Um, and one last time, thank you so much, Billy. Thank you, Peter. Very kind of you, man.